So if our children are going out, that's a pretty good indication of where their commitment and Lord willing ours is too. Hey, let me pray again just briefly uh, before I get into the message proper. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit informing our spirits and our hearts to hear the things you mean for each of us to hear this morning. We trust you to do that. We are asking you to do that, that your, your word this morning will not be void, that it will accomplish your purposes, Lord. We thank you for that. Depend on that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our daughter Jessica was a music major at Washburn University probably more years ago than I care to remember, and she would too at this point. Uh, I think it was the last year of her time there, she was given a stipend to basically do some investigation and write an article for a National Flute magazine. And it was a pretty good summer project for her. And that might sound like a yawn if you're not a music major. The, the article was fascinating. It, it gripped my interest. She basically talked about the challenges, the testing that was part of the process for any musician who was trying to gain a chair in a major orchestra. And what I learned was that making making a seat, gaining a position in a major orchestra, she talked about tier one and tier two, these would be big cities in the United States that can afford a good orchestra. And to make it in one of those is like making it in the NBA or the NFL, which is to say there's a ton of competition. And so the story was really about not only the competition, but the degrees and the manners and the ways in which all these aspiring musicians went to mitigate the test and their own stress related to this. So typically, one of these aspiring musicians would either fly or drive to another city, the, the place they hoped to gain a chair, and there would be a blind audition. And that means they come on stage and they can't see the judges and the judges can't see them, so there's no prejudice that way. And then they start playing their piece. And they had to have memorized a number of selections because the judges might just say, now we want to hear this part of this piece from you, and they're playing it by memory. And the stress levels are really high. Part of the article is about the ways in which they tried to manage their stress. They would eat, I don't get this. You guys might. They would eat bananas. Bananas do something for you. I don't know if it's a sodium or if it's a chemical or whatever. But they were doing all these legal ways of managing their stress because uh, so much is on, on the table for them, right? It's a major, major challenge. And it's a test in their life that's really going to affect them long term. So on one hand, you got this pivotal test, this audition in their life. But of course, as they get to that audition, they're bringing with it the fruits of what they've been doing every day. And, and for many of these folks, most of the years of their life. And so in that sense, the test that is the audition, it's merely a reflection of how they responded to the test every day of their commitment to be this outstanding musician. So did they practice their scales daily? Did they go through the disciplines that a musician does so that they're at the top of their game when they show up? Or didn't they? Another daughter, Bethany, had a violin teacher who told her this, and maybe she only said it once, but I've never forgotten it. She said, if you as a musician, aspiring musician, if you miss a day of practice, you'll know it. She said, if you miss two days of practice, I'll know it. The teacher will know it. 
And she said, if you miss three days of practice, everyone will know it. So that whole sense that the audition at the end, that was just the end of a process in which this person had been contributing to their improvement, working at that or not. They were making decisions every day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then that was revealed when they did these auditions. So life was a test every day. And then the, the reality or the fruit of that every day kind of test came up when they had their audition. Now think of this. How was it, if you read this in 1 Samuel 17, I believe, if you read the story about a young shepherd boy who is going to become King David, and you remember the story, he goes to the Valley of Elah, and Israel's lined up on one side of the valley and the Philistines are on the other. What allows this nobody... This youngest son of Jesse, nobody in Israel knows this guy, and he comes up and he says to King Saul, I'm your answer, I'm your man, I'll confront <clears throat> excuse me, this uncircumcised Philistine who's having his way verbally with our God. How does, how does he get there? How does he face that test? Everybody else is afraid. What gives him the ability to come up and, and faced basically with a test of courage and faithfulness, what allows him to do that? And he has a conversation with King Saul because King Saul's like, I don't know, because Israel's future is dependent on the outcome of this battle. I don't know. And David says this, when nobody knew me, when no one saw me, in fact, later in the story when, when uh, he comes up and is anointed as a king for the first time, and Jesse is told, bring all your sons in, they don't even bring David in. He's told, bring all your sons in. They don't bring him. He's not even on the plate because he's the youngest son and he's taking care of the sheep and they don't even think to invite him. But David says this to Saul. He says, when I was a shepherd and his brothers mock him over this, taking care of those few sheep in the wilderness. Uh, he says, when I was a shepherd and a lion or a bear came up and stole one of our sheep, I chased them down, I struck them, and I got that sheep back. And he says, this uncircumcised Philistine, he's going to be like that. God is going to strike him down. Which is to say, the giant was just like the audition for the musician. The giant was just the latest test. David had been facing tests when no one else was around, no one was looking. And if he had to tell his dad, hey, sorry, we lost a sheep, no big deal, he didn't. He said, it was incumbent on me. I ran down, I chased them down. I faced the test every day of a shepherd when no one else was around. And the test looked insignificant. That's what I did. So when it came time to face a giant, I was ready because I'd successfully negotiated the tests of life all along the way. We tend to focus our attention on what we consider significant tests. And certainly, there are pivotal tests in your and my life in which we would say, you look back and this incident, this event, this literal test, you know, this is a time of year people are graduating from college, but there have been final exams we've studied for, or there's college entrance exams, or there's licensing exams. Those are all tests of a manner. Everyone's facing tests of one sort or another. It is part of our daily life. But the shape of our lives, it doesn't just, it's not just affected by those pivotal singular tests. It's really affected by the way you and I face our tests every day. If you read James 1, James talks about tests. He uses these phrases, tests, trials, and temptations. 
And the Greek word for two of those is the same word. We would say of ourselves today, we face tests, trials, and temptations. All of us do every day. I mean, when we choose to get up or not in the morning, that's a test, if you will. We're facing tests of, or trials or temptations of one form or another every day, and most of them no one else knows about. But we do. And those tests, the way we respond to those daily tests, that affects who we become. I read a book recently on addictions and addictive behaviors, and one of the things they brought up from classical scholarship was simply the habits of the heart. That is, that I train my mind and my affections and my heart every day by what I'm giving myself to. And that's the thought here. I'm becoming someone and something every day. Every day is a test. I'm becoming something as I face those tests every day. We're in the 11th message in the series, Mercy Waiting, Lessons in Deuteronomy. And what we'll find this morning in the text is that the nation of Israel was being tested like we are every day. So every day in their 40 years in the wilderness, they're being tested. And this is what God will bring up in the passage we're in this morning. But they're also, God warns them, you're also going to be tested when you go into the land of promise. Now we get it that if you say, I'm tested in the wilderness, there's nothing around and I'm confronted, and we'll look at a few of these, I'm confronted with needs. And so my needs drive me to God and say, I get that. But God says also, in fact, he says more emphatically, he says, you will be tested, not just in the, little, in the wilderness. You'll be more fully tested when I give you all the good stuff in the land of promise. So they're going to be tested. They were tested every day, just as you and I are. Israel was tested with little in the wilderness, and then later in the land, they're tested with much. Materially speaking, they were tested with lack and abundance. This was a great, great opening song, Sean, by the way. It's God that gives and takes away. They were tested with peace and with war in their wilderness wanderings and right up to the gateway of the land of promise. And of course, once they crossed the Jordan in the land of promise as well. In his mercy, God meant for Israel to find in him all they needed while living in the desert and all they wanted when they had the abundance in the land of promise. And God in his mercy allows us to experience times and situations of great privation and need, as well as days of great abundance and joy, and he does so at least in part, at least in part, so that we can come to know him as our ultimate need met and as our ultimate desire fulfilled. So tested with little, tested with much. If you've got your Bibles, and there are a few Bibles out here as well, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 8 verses 1 through 5. We're going to start there. <clears throat> I've shuffled the deck a little bit. We'll start in Deuteronomy 8. We'll go back to Deuteronomy 6 and then back again to Deuteronomy 8. I wanted to start with the testing related to little. I think that's the one we tend to think of. In other words, when my needs seem great, but the ability to meet those needs seems small. I can't see the way God might meet my needs. Tested with little. That's the wilderness wandering years. And that's why I want to start in chapter 8. And remember the setting here is Moses is speaking shortly before he dies, speaking to the nation of Israel that will go into the land of promise, some of whom have been there for the whole 40-year wandering. If they were less than 20 years old, God let them go into the land of promise uh, from the initial sins after the exodus. 
So he's speaking to that generation, and he's, he's looking back on one hand to the past 40 years, and he's also going to be looking forward as well. So Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 5, Moses wrote, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord, that's all caps, so that's Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on your translation, that's the personal name for God, the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness and listen to, to the emphasis here. God's led you 40 years in the wilderness that for this purpose he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He, and this is God's intention, He humbled you. He let you hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In other words, God had a, a provision for their food that no one could have ever foreseen or guessed at, that God would somehow raise rain this bready stuff down every night absolutely unlooked for that for this purpose he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the lord your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son the lord your god disciplines you and remember, that's the love of a father for the son. You remember, this is all throughout the wisdom literature, Proverbs especially. Proverbs says if a parent doesn't pursue their child with discipline, which broad term is training, it's because they don't love them. God says, no, I'm a loving father, and I've loved you through those wilderness years. I've disciplined and trained you through these times of lack. The testings you faced in the wilderness were intentional from my hand. So God was intentionally using Israel's period in the wilderness of having little to help them gain God's perspective in life. We'll walk through this passage a little bit, verse by verse. If you look at verse 2, Yahweh was testing you. Now, the test wasn't for God's benefit, was it? God is omniscient. You and I haven't done anything God doesn't already know. God's omniscient. He knew everything they would do. The test was for their benefit and for ours. He was testing them. And before I move on, I'm going to linger here for just a minute. Um, it's important that when we hear some things, we, uh, we don't miss here. If you read through the Bible, what you'll find is that faced with every test humanity has faced, we've done what? We've failed. We have failed every test. So go back to the Garden of Eden. All you got to do is avoid one tree. Failed. And guys, what we see, we don't, uh, when we see Israel's failures, if we say to ourselves, if I had been there, I wouldn't have done that. We need to be really slow to think that or to say that. Because God's been very intentional in what you see as far as mankind goes. The record of you and me and our ancestors whom we're like is that when we're faced with tests, we don't succeed, we fail. And guys, by the way, that's why we need a Savior. We fail the test. So one of the difficulties with uh, talking about Scripture like this, as far, especially as far as application, 
in this passage, Moses said, he said it again, we've talked about this before, the old covenant said, do this and live. In other words, their blessing, longevity of life, abundance of life, was dependent on them keeping the law. Did Israel keep the law? They didn't. They failed the test. And that's the pattern you see throughout all of Scripture. So if I say, if this is the way I come to Scripture, I come to this story and I say, well, Israel failed, I won't fail. I've set myself up for failure, and not only that, for disappointment. For disappointment as well. It is true, and you'll hear this oftentimes, it is true that Jesus left us an example, that his life was meant to be an example for us. You read that in 1 Peter. Jesus showed us how to suffer well. By the way, if you want to see the key example in Scripture Jesus left for us, it's how to suffer well. So there is this sense that Scripture lines up examples for us, warnings, do this, don't do that, absolutely. But if we only see it as an example and, and we take Christ out of the picture as Savior and our life, we've set ourselves up to be legalists, just like the Pharisees. Now, Jesus says, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if we're not careful, we'll make the new covenant under King Jesus the same as the old covenant, a performance-based way of living life that you'll always be condemned because you'll never get it right all the time. So we want to remind ourselves as we're talking about tests and trials and whether we're successful or failure in any, any of them, any area or any single one, we want to remind ourselves that for the Christians living in the new covenant, we have a new birth, we have a new life, we have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God, and what God is doing in us today is He's raising up the life of Christ within us, and we're supposed to be putting distance between ourselves and the old life we're born with. But guys, everyone has trouble with this. So, you know, even the great apostle Paul in Romans 7, he goes through that litany and he says, you know, it ends up that I don't do the things I want to do because I've got this inner bent towards sin and failure. And as long as we're in the body, we've got it. And in fact, Peter talks about it as lusts in our soul, they wage war on us. That's inside the Christian. Galatians 5, it's, it's dramatically opposed that you've got a war going on within yourself between the old nature and the new nature. So when we come to these and we say these are, are examples and 1 Corinthians 10 says these stories from the Old Testament are examples for us, we want to remind ourselves we're not trying to keep a law. We're justified in Christ. We have Christ's life in us by the Holy Spirit. And so when we see our points of failure, the little daily kind or the singular pivotal kinds, we want to do something like this. We want to say, Lord, I've, I've disappointed myself. I've sinned again. Thank you for the forgiveness I have in Christ. I'm confessing my sin. You help me to live the way Jesus would live now. We're not holding ourselves up. We are not going to make perfection. It does not happen. No one, no one on the earth besides Jesus can get to heaven on their own merits. So we want to make sure we've got examples. We want to see those. We want to embrace those. But God knows every failure in the future you're going to have. And he has chosen to set his love on us anyway and call us his sons and his daughters. 
So we need to live out of that or we will be legalists. So be careful on that. Digression. Uh, verse 3, Yahweh let you hunger. Have you guys ever had times when you're just hungry? Moses says, uh, Yahweh let you hunger that Israel would learn they needed God and His Word more than they needed meat or bread. Your body's going to die. Physical bread and nutrition is not your greatest need. Spiritual life is your greatest need. And is, was that a familiar passage, by the way? Man does not live by bread alone. Have I ever, I've heard that someplace. We'll talk about that later. Verses 2 and 3, humble, the term humble, God says, I did this. This was intentional. When you were in the desert and you were having a tough time, he says, I meant that. Because he says two times I meant to humble you. Humble is a strong term in the Hebrew to oppress, afflict, depress in the sense of pushing something or someone down. God intentionally brought about the challenges of the desert in order to humble Israel. And guys, what you're going to see in the passages we'll go to is that God wanted to humble them before they got to abundance. Because if we're proud and we get lots of good stuff, we just get more proud because it's all about us, because we're all that. God wanted to humble Israel in the wilderness so that when they came into the place of abundance and plenty, they would have the proper mindset. They would understand that it was God who had blessed them. You remember, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God, as a loving father, humbled Israel in the desert so that they could be blessed, so that they would be in a position of humility to be blessed. Look at verse 4. Uh, God preserved Israel's clothing in the desert and their health so that they could keep going. Is that a good thing? If, if you're a, a clothed maven, this is not a good thing. You want the new styles. They, had the, they wore the same clothing for 40 years. No malls, no stores. They can't go out and buy the new dress or the fashion or the jacket or whatever. Uh, God says that's one of the ways I cared for you. Your clothing didn't wear out. And your health was adequate to keep going through the desert all of those 40 years. And then last, verse 5, God disciplines, he chastises. This word means with blows or with words to instruct, chase, and correct reprove and teach so God says I was very intentional with you in the wilderness those tests you faced those were from me there was no mistake about that there was no surprise this was my plan and my intention all the way along every trial and lack Israel experienced in the desert was a test and an invitation to trust Yahweh to see how he would provide so you remember they faced a lack of water God provided water from a rock in the desert, which 1 Corinthians 10 tells us was Christ. They had a lack of food. God rained manna. God rained bread on them. Do you remember what Jesus says in, in John 6? Uh, God gave you them manna and they died, but, but I'm the bread of life. Jesus is, is the better than all of those. Those reflect or they speak to him in the future. Do you remember they, the, the Jews quipped, can God really set a table for us in the wilderness? We're hungry for some meat in the middle of the desert. Can God give us meat? And what did he do? He rained quail on them. He gave them more meat than they wanted to eat. And, of course, enemy armies as well. When they chose to obey God, God defeated the enemy armies that were opposing them. 
Every test was God reminding them to humble themselves before him and to look to God himself for direction and resources. Now, Israel failed their wilderness tests. So you read the record, read Exodus, especially Numbers and Deuteronomy, especially Israel failed their tests. And it didn't matter which one they were. And do you remember what the, the repetition was in those? It was grumbling and complaining born out of unbelief. We're not with you on this, God. You're blowing it, and this is what we want you to do, and you're not doing it. How are we doing? I hope you have a study sheet for, to reflect either now or later. How are we doing when we face our own desert tests when we have little? And little can be all kinds of different things, can't it? God will give us our own desert tests. He will use the challenges of life to humble us, to push us down so that we will look up to Him. God does that. These tests of lack and little, they aren't accidents. They aren't mistakes, though we may feel like it in the moment. It often feels like that. Lord, the bottom's fallen out. Something's wrong. They're from God's loving hand. When we lack finances, that's a big one for most of us. You've got to make a living. You've got to pay bills. What do we do when finances are tough? The, the, the abundance isn't there in financial provision. What does that look like? Many of us, certainly Kathy and I, have lived through that for all the early years of our uh, marriage and our family. And, you know, I didn't do well in the tests, frankly. You wouldn't have known it necessarily. You know, we always had enough money. We never missed a meal. We never were late for a payment. We had medical bills for at least 10 years. We never missed a payment for lack of funds. But there was nothing extra. And I would, I, I would complain quietly to the Lord. It's like, you know, when does, this, when does this end? You know, when does it get better? When does it get easier? You know, because the finances affect what you can and cannot do. And I lived in that place for a long, long time. One of the lessons, we share this routinely, when I look back at some of our tests of little, it's if I did it again, I would be anxious less and I would enjoy more. I would worry less, I would enjoy more because we always had what we needed. That was never a question on finances. Guys, we can lack good health. You, you can be laid up in life in one way or another with your health and just unable to get out and do all the things you'd like to do. And we're just like, Lord, we know you could heal us with a word. And sometimes God does. And oftentimes he doesn't. And that's a lack of health and the ability to simply engage in life in the way we would like to and in the way other people do. And what do I do with that? Lord, my health's not what I wanted. Uh, we can lack encouraging friendships. You can go through a dearth, a lack of having People who know you and love you and are there for you. That's a lack. That's little. Uh, many of us have probably had that experience as well. Uh, we prayed decades ago uh, just for friends, specifically for my wife. And, you know, eventually God provided her lifelong friends, but there was a dearth of that. We both moved back to Topeka. We, didn't, we had left as non-Christians. We came back as Christians. We knew no one here. We're new into these churches that was a challenge. And by the way, if, you're, if you say that's me now, one of the things I would challenge slash encourage you to do if you aren't is simply to get plugged into one of the small groups that meets in the church. If you're here with a couple hundred people on a Sunday morning, 
you may say the highs and the buys. You may get to know someone at a very small level, but you can't develop the kinds of friendships that all Christians need, but you can in smaller group settings. So life is sometimes going to look and feel like a desert. And what are we doing when that happens? Those are tests. The desert lack the little. As I face that, I'm supposed to be drawn to God in humility, and I want to bring my needs to God. I want to pray about those and give those to Him. Uh, For time's sake, I'm not going to cover most of the verses. Uh, Verses from Philippians 4. I will mention Hebrews 13.5. This is a particularly pointed verse about contentment no matter how much stuff you have or don't have. Jesus says in 13.5 Hebrews, uh, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God, Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a significant sense in which the Christian who refuses to be content is saying, Jesus, you're inadequate. Jesus, you're not enough. Jesus says, if you have me, you have enough to be content with whatever else is going on. That's singularly significant and important. So when tested with little, we're meant to draw near to God to find in Him and His provision our greatest needs fully met. If you would, turn back a couple chapters from Deuteronomy 8 to chapter 6. This is where we'll pick up the warnings about the tests that would yet come. They haven't experienced them yet, but the tests are coming for the Jews as they get into the land of promise. And both in chapter 6 and in chapter 8, God speaks through Moses to warn them about the tests that are coming when it's not the little that they experience in the desert, but it's when it's the abundance of the land of promise they come into. So this is chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, God keeps His promises, guys. He's bringing you in. He's fulfilling the promises. And the place he's taking you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care. Be careful. Beware lest you forget the Lord. Wow. He doesn't just say celebrate and have a great time. He says, when you got all the good stuff, beware. Because your temptation will be to forget Yahweh. The one who gave you all the good stuff, you'll forget him. You'll get the gifts and you'll forget, you will forget the one that gave you those gifts. You'll be so focused on this good stuff, you'll forget the one who gave it to you. Turn back, if you would, to Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 20. Similar thinking, similar thought, similar warning. Uh, Starting at verse 7, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. He says, guys, it'll be as good as it gets. 
the place I'm taking you, there's water everywhere. You're going to have crops abundantly so you can mine the metals out of the hills to make anything you need. It's going to be great. And he says, at least initially, you're going to come in, you're going to experience it, and you're going to bless the Lord. But look at verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord. Verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied. When you get all the good stuff you ever wanted. Verse 14, then your heart be lifted up. Remember in the desert, he says, I'm humbling you. He says the temptation when you got all the good stuff is pride. He says, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery beware verse 17 lest you say in your heart not Yahweh my power the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so in the desert groaning complaints when there's little but God says guys I'm teaching you the lessons that will let you go into the land of promise and enjoy it without forgetting me the humility is important most of us would obviously love to be tested with much instead of with little lord you can trust me with that money with that responsibility with that status whatever right that's where most of us live absolutely but if you go back through that listen just to the some of the language again lest you forget the lord take care lest you forget the lord you forget the Lord your God. You say to yourself, my power, my might, my hand have gotten me this wealth. That's the temptation of abundance. The temptation when we have little is to complain in unbelief. The temptation in much is to forget God in proud unbelief. And guys, that's exactly what happened. So if you fast forward from Moses and you read the next book, Joshua you know, the guy that replaces Moses, he takes them into the land of promise. They fight the battles. They face the giants in the walled cities. And pretty much they occupy the land of promise. Pretty much. But when Joshua, that book winds down and the next book, Judges, winds up, Joshua and his generation die. Language is striking because it's absolutely similar to Exodus. It says a Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph. And, and when Joshua's gone, these people rose up and and they didn't know what the former generation knew. And so what do you begin in the, in the book of Judges? When Israel has abundance and plenty, what do they do? They forget Yahweh who gave it. They turn to idolatry. And God, what does he do? God humbles them. You remember? Because he sends oppressors. He humbles them until they're down far enough that what do they do? They look up and they say, God, we're in trouble. We confess and we need you. And so God sends a judge who delivers them, and it starts over and over again. And that's the cycle you see in Judges in the short term. But if you go to the book of Hosea 600 years later, Hosea is around the same time as Isaiah. Listen to this. So, so Israel's been around hundreds of years after this was given, after Deuteronomy was written. God says to Israel, It was I who knew you in the wilderness. Back in the day when, when life wasn't full and abundant. Back in the desert, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, when Israel, like a sheep or a cow, came into the land of promise with all the abundance that was there, 
When they had grazed, they became full. They were filled. Their heart was lifted up. That's pride, not humility. And what did they do? They forgot me. So short-term, God warns, follow their history. You see, it's exactly what happens. Exactly. Israel failed when tested with much. So on your study sheet, again, there's, a, there's some questions for you to reflect on. How are we facing the tests of abundance? And friends, for the most part, not without exception, but for the most part, if you live in the United States, you have much. Not little. You have abundance, not scarcity. You know, in, with any historic comparison or if you look around the world, what we have just as far as stuff, we have abundance. Most of us, almost all of us have abundance. That's more of the kind of testing we face than that of scarcity, primarily at least. Now, the tendency when individuals or groups are tested with wealth is to forget the Lord. Let me just give you two examples of this. Europe was the center, was the starting point of the Reformation. And if you're in this church today, a Protestant church, you are in some ways connected to the Reformation of Europe, 1517. The Reformation started in Europe. Europe sent out the missionaries around the world. What is Europe like today? It's an atheistic wasteland that has a lot of wealth. The percentage of people, Christians, in, the, in Western Europe is less than 5% professing, and usually attendance at churches is around 2 to 3% in the European nations that used to be the center of the Reformation and sent missionaries throughout the world. If you look at our own history, started well, grandly, certainly we have singular points where the nation from leadership on down have humbled ourselves and, and cried out to God. You look back through American history, but guys, by any measure, we are now also a post-Christian nation. And it's important to remember, we live here, so that's why I'm talking about the United States. God is not an American God is not an American. This is, happens to be the country where we, his children, live, but God has his children all over. And you remember, when we get to heaven, we don't say we're an American. We're gods. We're gods. But, but we are now in a culture that has this great history of men and women who look to God, who were careful about these kinds of tests. And that's become less and less the case today. We're a post-Christian nation, certainly. Uh, life is a test. If you want to, you can look at Hebrews 12 later. Hebrews 12 quotes Proverbs 3. And it's to say this. In the beginning chapters of Exodus, God calls Israel his son. And that's to contrast God's son Israel with Pharaoh's sons also. That's going to come up when the death of the firstborn occurs. But of course, then Jesus comes and he, he is truly and uniquely God the son, the son of God. But you and I now are children of God. The term sons is used to describe all of us because sons are heirs in the language of the, those old uh, uh, cultures. To be called a son is not demeaning to a woman. It meant you, you inherit like everybody else. But we are sons and daughters of the living God, and God is a faithful and loving father. And so just as he humbled and blessed Israel in the wilderness and the land of promise, God is using all the stuff that he causes or allows to come into our lives to humble us sometimes, to get our attention so that we call out to him, to bless us sometimes with abundance as well because he's a very generous, loving God. 
But God is treating us as his children, and nothing that comes into your life, and this sounds extreme, but nothing can come into your life apart from God causing or allowing it. The greatest blessing and the hardest thing you experience. God has all power. If God wants to stop something, he can. Nothing can stop his will being fully accomplished. So everything that comes into our life, God is causing or allowing, and he's doing so because he loves us, because he's training us up as his children. He loves us as much as he loves Jesus. No less. He can't love us more. So he's faithful in his parenting role of us, no matter what that looks like, if we see ourselves in times of lack and little, or if we see ourselves in times of abundance. God loves us the same in any of those, and we're being tested in all those phases of life as well. I do want to mention, as I wind down, when we're faced with little, 1 Timothy 6 is a great passage for both the testing of having little and also abundance. 1 Timothy 6 Godliness with contentment is great gain. Some people in Timothy's world in Ephesus were saying, you know, if you're a Christian, you can get good stuff. That wasn't always the case, by the way, in that, that time either. But if you're a Christian, you can get stuff. And Paul's response is, well, godliness with contentment is great gain. You don't need the stuff to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And he also said this, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If you've got clothes on your back, roof over your head, some food on the plate, he says that's enough to be content. That's a low standard, right? For any of us on any day, we should be choosing contentment. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says, I'm content with weakness. I'm content when there's lack or little in my life. Why? Because I know that when I'm weak, God shows up in his strength. So that the, the times or the places in my life where I see the, the deficit, that's the place that God can most fully glorify himself because I know it's about him, it's not about me and my competence. Philippians 4.11, which we need to remember was written from prison, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Love to be out there sharing the gospel, love to be church with you on Sunday, but I'm in prison, and Paul says, and I'm content. I'm good with that. Also look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 18 when we're, in, uh, when we're in tall cotton, when life's good and we have abundance. Listen to what Paul says there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, isn't this interesting, not to be haughty, not to be proud because you have a lot of stuff. That's what Israel had done. Not to be haughty and don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. In abundance, this, this uh, generosity of spirit, which is exactly what God has towards us. I want to conclude by bringing up uh, Jesus and that phrase from Deuteronomy 6 again. If you read Matthew 4 and Luke 4, they both have very similar accounts of Jesus' temptation. And, and put this in perspective with the, the text and the, the Deuteronomy that we were coming out of. So God takes Israel that he calls his son, and he takes them for 40 years in the desert so that they can be tested. And they don't pass the test. They don't, 
they don't face the tests of life in the desert well. Grumbling and complaining was the norm. And isn't it interesting then when, when God's son Jesus, he goes out into a desert wilderness. It's not for 40 years, but it is for 40 days. And, and he's faced with very similar temptations, isn't he? He's in the desert, water's an issue, and he doesn't eat for 40 days. And then he is fully tempted by one who knows how to tempt, by Satan himself. And what does Jesus do? He passes the test. And he's the only one who ever has. And we are meant to see that all those failures that are representative of Israel and their life, it's always because God was going to bring about his own son and Jesus would be the one who would face the tests of life successfully, who would leave us an example for facing the tests of life successfully, but more important and more to the point for you and I, who would give his life as a ransom for our failures and then would give us Himself by His Spirit so that however successful we are or not in facing our tests, we have a home to go to. We, we stand justified in Christ, not because we face the tests well, but because He did. He is our righteousness. So at the end of the day, we're meant to see Jesus is the one that did what no one else could do. We stand in His righteousness because He spilled His blood, covered our sins with His life, His forgiveness. So when we face the tests, we can say, Lord, thanks that You helped me pass the test. Did you hear my timer? That was to keep me honest. Yeah, sorry. That's embarrassing. I can't even turn my timer off. It's been a while since I've used this. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'll sit on it, sorry. I don't know. It'll probably go off again. Anyway, uh, we need a Savior. We'll, we, you know, some tests you and I will face and pass and we'll be good. And a bunch of them we won't. And what do you do when you failed? And what do you do when you failed again? And again? And again? You say, Lord, thanks that Jesus faced every test successfully. Thanks that I stand in the grace and the favor of you because Jesus paid for my sins and because Christ is now my life. And if Christ isn't your life, he is who and what you need. This life is short, guys. And if it's hard the whole way or if it's filled with abundance the whole way, it's short and it's over and there's eternity. And you want to be with Christ where Christ is, where there's abundance and there's joy forever. Amen. If you would, stand and let's read from Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. These are some of my favorite verses in Proverbs. And it's, be, it's because the, the reality of the prayer, it's the knowledge, it's what's acknowledged in this prayer about having a bunch or having very little. Let's read that together. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of